the Recovery Daily Podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Miller. I'm a stroke survivor and grateful recovering alcoholic. Today's uh, topic is open-mindedness in stroke recovery. And what I want to talk about is honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness. Um, I had a neurology appointment today and um, got some, I, it was interesting, honestly, it was, it was interesting. So I want to talk a little bit about that first and give you a health update. So um, what we did today was I really didn't know what to expect. I have been starting with migraine injections that have been able to remove the chronic, like the headache that just exists when I'm doing nothing, when I'm just kind of sitting there. I was having a headache like all the time, no matter what I did. So that seems to have gone away uh, in the sense that if I'm laying in my bed or I'm sitting with my eyes closed, I don't have a headache, um, which wasn't the case for the past uh, months and months and months. So um, that is good news. Um, however, when I do any of the things that a normal person would do, like um, you know, take my dog out for a walk, uh, try to be on my computer or my phone or anything, uh, that I've talked about in previous podcasts that involve any kind of movement. Um, my head starts hurting. So that, uh, is still here. Um, I have, I've had a really bad headache day, Um, and usually when that happens, I struggle a little bit with finding my words. So I may be a little choppy as far as keeping my train of thought, but we're going to go anyway, because that's what we do here. So I went, uh, we talked about that. She said that's positive and that we're going to go another month, uh, with another injection and see, uh, she said, if I had a little bit of an improvement after six weeks with the injection, then um, I may see a little more improvement over another month. So I'm going to try a little longer and see if that, um, you know, gets even better. And, um, and then we'll see what we do from there. And then uh, she was talking to me about working with my insurance company on finalizing some paperwork uh, because I'm still waiting for the long-term disability review to go through. And uh, so in the meantime, so her part was to fill out this cognitive assessment form. Aside from all the other things that she's doing, Um, They're sending me to a neuropsychiatrist, and that guy is going to test me for all these different things about, like, 
uh, how my everyday kind of activities, memory, um, my train of thought, long-term memory, short-term memory, um, doing multiple things at once, I think, uh, these types of things. Is it is anxiety uh, or depression playing a role in uh, disrupting my cognitive abilities? Like what is happening inside my brain? Um, and so what she did, so that's in December. And what she did today was um, she did a small cognitive test. And this is the same test that they gave me in the hospital. Um, so she asked me to draw the face of a clock and put all of the numbers on the clock, which I did. Um, immediately when I started doing that, I felt uh, a little, some sort of sensation in my head. I can't really explain to you what it was, but it's just like, it's a feeling that's kind of like a cross between a headache, dizziness, overwhelming, kind of like fogginess. It's it's really difficult for me to wrap my head around, if you will, uh, what words to use to explain it. So I did that fine. I did the task fine, um, but I started feeling a little off. Then I had to, um, let's see, this is where my head's not going to work very well to, for this podcast, uh, trying to remember. So she had me spell the word world backwards. That was my second to the last thing I had to do. And that by the time I got to that, I felt I started feeling really tired and overwhelmed. And before that, I had to count back from 100 uh, by sevens. And that I did fine. Like all of these tasks, I performed them fine. You know, I didn't fail any of the tests, but I could feel with each test, it was one after the other in a, in a matter of just a few minutes. She just was like, okay, now we're going to do this. Now we're going to do this. Um, and then the last thing I had to do was she drew a picture on a piece of paper, like a geometric two geometric shapes that were meeting and she asked me to draw it and so I drew it and by the time I finished drawing that I got this overwhelming emotional like like I just wanted to cry like my head was hurting there was tension in my head uh, I felt extremely foggy and I thought, do I, like my boyfriend was in there too. And I thought, do I act like I'm okay? Or do I communicate how terrible I feel right now? So I just said for the, you know, at the risk of sounding like a crazy woman, <laughs> I said, I'm feeling 
extremely overwhelmed right now. Like, I want to cry. I'm feeling just a lot of uh, dizziness and my head hurts. And so I just, and it was kind of quiet in there. And I thought, do they think I'm crazy? Like, that's what I thought. Um, But I just sat there like trying to hold back tears. I had tears like welling up in my eyes. And um, I just sat there like nobody said anything. Uh, So I just sat there. And then um, she started responding. She left the room to get a printout. It was it was kind of odd. I don't know. The reaction was a little odd. But then afterwards, she said that it makes sense. And then we talked a little bit about, she said, you know, you're used to functioning at an above average level, and which I was flattered. And, uh, and now you're just to just to function at a average level, you it takes everything you have. And so that explains my kind of breakdown. Uh, It felt like I had a shot of adrenaline after I was done with the test. So remember, I've said many times, and even this week, I think, I've talked about the 90-second rule and how when your environment causes you to feel something, the chemicals are released in your body. It takes 90 seconds for them to flush through your body. That is exactly what I, what I experienced. I was sitting in that room and it was about 90 seconds that I was sitting there and I could feel it. I could feel like the adrenaline or the chemicals or, you know, like my head, I felt like the blood all my blood rushed to my head and it was uh, about 90 seconds and then I could feel it flushing out. It was the weirdest thing ever, but it was really enlightening to experience exactly what I've been talking about um, in, in a way that applies to my stroke, in a way that I could do the tests that were given to me, but my physical reaction to it was obvious to me, not to anybody else in the room. Nobody would be able to look at me other than the tears in my eyes. Uh, they could they could have probably taken my blood pressure right after that or something like that to see that I was having an emotional reaction but uh it was just fascinating it 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 made it a lot more clear to me what's happening in my body how hard my body my brain has to work to do really really simple tasks because these tasks that they had me do were like uh, you know a five-year-old could do it it was that easy but yet I just was absolutely taxed and overwhelmed and emotionally exhausted from it. So um, that's what I experienced. So 
the next step is I've got this neuropsychiatrist uh, assessment in December. Um, that's the soonest they could get me in. And now I'm making an appointment with a neuro-ophthalmologist. And the neuro-ophthalmologist, which coincidentally was the same recommendation that um, that the gentleman that I was interviewed uh, by for the other podcast that I haven't told you about yet, and I apologize for that, but I will, <laughs> I will uh, talk about it. Um, he had recommended that I go to a neuro-ophthalmologist as well. So um, he is a three-time stroke survivor uh, and lots of brain surgeries and stuff like that. So anyway, tomorrow I'll be making an appointment for the neuro-ophthalmologist. Oh, and what they do is they actually, uh, so the the optometrist, wait, optometrist, ophthalmologist, optometrist, he was the one that I went to already. And he, uh, optometry. I, sorry. Um, he's the one I went to, uh, so far, uh, for the vision therapy and stuff. And they look at your eyeballs and if your eyeballs are working. And so the neuro ophthalmologist looks at how your brain is processing the information that your eyes are sending it. And that is where I think I've got something wrong in there. Um, I mean, that's one of my issues. That's the most obvious one to me is my vision. But it seems like uh, maybe there's there's lots of other things going on. So we're going to see. Um, so I feel hopeful. Honestly, I feel hopeful every time I go. Um, we just kind of check off a little bit, you know, we're we're in an experimental phase, I think. And that's one thing I was talking to her about is taking this injection, this, I, I injected into my stomach. It's just, um, like a pen thing. Like, uh, like if you have, uh, an allerg, uh, like if you're allergic to an EpiPen, if, uh, it's kind of similar looking to that, and um, I just do it in my belly uh, is the location of choice for me um, once a month. And it's not a big deal. It does hurt, but it's not a big deal. You just kind of do it. And um, and I was going somewhere with that. I'm so sorry. This is going to be a tough one for me because my head is hurting today. Uh, so what I told her was, since my pain, the chronic pain has been diminished, uh, I tend to meet my activity level where the pain is. You know, I push right up to the pain. So if I don't have pain, then I push myself up to the point that something hurts. And I felt, I said, I don't know if I should be doing that, but I'm I'm kind of always trying to figure out 
what I'm capable of because I don't know. I don't know what I can do and what I can't do. And it changes on any given day. And so as my pain changes, I'm not sure. Does that mean I can be on a computer? Well, no. <laughs> I'm telling you that no, it I I can't. So I had also been playing around with not using voiceover on my phone, and that's been a mistake also. So I've gone back to using voiceover on my phone, which come to think of it, I didn't turn it off <laughs> before I started the podcast. So if you hear somebody uh, talking in the background, I've called her Karen, my voiceover on my phone. Her name is Karen. And uh, if you hear her talking, that's who it is. So uh, she said, the neurologist said that that was okay, that um, that I do some experimentation and that it was it was healthy for me to do experimentation. And she, it, it was really nice. She was, she acknowledged my grieving of my identity and what I have been trying to do here, um, figuring out who I am and what I can do. Now, what she said today that, that my boyfriend and I had not heard yet communicated to us is we won't be able to get you back to where you were but we are going to try to get you to a place where you can start understanding your identity what you can do and what you can do and that it's a it's a manageable place for you so that's the first time that we have had somebody say we're not going to be able to get you back to where you were. So um, if my head didn't hurt so bad, <laughs> I probably would be more emotional about it. But uh, that may come tomorrow. I think right now, my my overriding feeling today, I think is, uh, other than the, the pain and exhaustion that I'm feeling, is acceptance is it's been hard for me to practice acceptance when I haven't yet been told what I need to accept. So having somebody tell me you're not going to get to where you were uh, is something I can start working to accept now. Um, and I do feel some emotion uh, welling up in my throat, but um you know, we'll deal with that tomorrow. I don't think I have the energy today to to deal with the emotion. And, and I get to choose that because that's what we talk about in the podcast. I get to choose um, when I'm going to, you know, process that stuff. Um, so that's what I'm going to do. So anyway... I wanted to talk about uh, this honesty, open-mindedness, and uh, willingness as it applies to my stroke. Um, I, I've talked a lot about how willingness is something that was introduced to me in my sobriety program. Um, open-mindedness, I don't talk about it so much. So open-mindedness is also something that was 
introduced to me and very much encouraged in my sobriety program in that we say principles before personalities. So what that means is that in my sobriety program, I have to put aside any judgments of people. And it doesn't matter who, you know, who has what higher power, who is um, odd, (laughs) who I don't get along with, you know, who might be creepy, who might be annoying, who I keep at arm's length, you know, everybody's different. And just like anywhere else in the world, um, we find a way to have uh, almost professional relationships or um, relationships that we can be comfortable with. And so um, I've had lots of different situations in my sobriety program where um, I have wanted to stop going to a meeting so much because there uh, have been just a couple instances where somebody was um, constantly like seeking me out to sit by me. Um, It was a creepy dude and um, he was not yet sober. And um, so I just kind of managed that and then he ended up stopping stopping coming. So, so that was kind of a relief, but I also had another individual in my sobriety program who, uh, was not happy with, uh, the, my place of work. Um, he had his own ideas about what was happening at my place of work. And, um, and they were just false. It, they were false ideas. Um, but he would kind of badger me about it every time I went to my sobriety meeting. And um, that sobriety meeting is supposed to be a place where I feel safe. And I can talk about uh, my recovery. And he was making it into uh, something very different than that. And it made me really uncomfortable. Um, but I managed to tell him that, um, I'm not comfortable talking to you about this anymore. And so he stopped, um, and that took bravery, but what I didn't do is, um, stop going to meetings because of these people. I wanted to, um, and I may have like skipped one, but I'm like, no, I cannot have this other person, um, be a negative, have a negative impact on my sobriety. So, uh, anyway, uh, that was kind of a tangent, but the more open-minded that I, uh, am, the more open-minded I become. And that's because I see the, the results. The same is true for willingness. The more, uh, willing I have been to, be a part of things outside of just my sobriety meetings and going to picnics and going to, um, you know, going out to a movie or a play with some of my uh, 
fellows, I, you know, it's about saying yes. And I talked about that, I think, yesterday, being able to say yes and being willing to go. And if I do that, the more I do it, the more I'm able to see the positive results from that, how much um, just freaking fun I can have. I have so much fun doing things with sober people. I, I never imagined that I would say that any people who might be listening to this who know me from my drinking days, um, I'm probably would just be like, there is no way in hell that this girl does things sober. But yes, I do. And I really like it. (laughs) I like this new version of me. It's version Rachel version two 2.0. I'm working on 3.0 post stroke. So, um, and then there's honesty. So honesty is also something that I learned in my sobriety program. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about that as well. So it's been difficult, as I explained uh, moments ago, to practice self-restraint during the, this experimental phase of my recovery from my stroke. And I think the biggest, like, what do they say, carrot that is dangling in front of me are my digital devices. Uh, It's just, it's hard because I feel so out of touch. If, If I could drive somewhere and get out of the house and do things or like go running or watch TV, then I wouldn't be so uh, inclined to want to be on my phone or my computer. But I can't do that either. I can't do much of anything. Um, You know, some days I, I feel like that at least. Um, So I feel uh, so tempted to go on my digital devices. And lately, I've also been challenged to abandon voiceover. And slowly but surely, my pain has been creeping back in over the past two weeks. Um, So I'm going back to voiceover. I've been on voiceover all day today, all day today. Um, So consistency, uh, that tells me is important in recovery. And I know that intellectually, I know that I need to be consistent. But it's when that daggone ego gets gets in the way. And me just kind of like, I have a tendency to blow things off. Um, There are several people in my life that (laughs) know that very well about me is that I'm everything will be fine. Everything will be fine. Um, But consistency, I talked about consistency yesterday is how uh, I make progress. Um, So unfortunately, it's most often that I realize uh, my way is not working when I hit a bottom. And, and that's what just when I'm getting, you know, I'm right about at a bottom again, for my head. Um, I've just been pushing myself too far. I've been 
trying to get my uh, long-term disability stuff worked out. Um, I did do the podcast interview, and I think that that really, really had a bad effect on my head because I set up a light because it was in the evening. So I set up a light so that um, I could be seen on camera. Um, I did look over the computer so that I wasn't looking at the screen. But just I think the whole environment was really bad for my head. So I've been struggling with that since uh, whenever I did that, that was Friday. So, wow. Yeah. It's been quite a few days now. Um, so I hit my bottom and that's when I start welcoming open-mindedness back in, you know, I start listening again. That's what happened last over the past year where everybody's trying to tell me, Rachel, you need to, you know, don't do this. Don't do that. You need to relax. You need to take care of yourself. You need to sleep. You need to check out, you know, um, and I don't listen. I, I don't listen. Um, and I do it over and over and over again. I'm a glutton for punishment and I experience so much unnecessary suffering, um, because of this, it, it's, I don't know. I'm going to keep working at it. That's all I can do is just keep practicing. And who am I to question what other people are recommending for me, especially experts? You know, I know my body best, but that's it. Uh, I need to leave the cures, the pain management, the analysis of my health, um, to the specialists and to people who care about me, because honestly, it seems like the people around me that care about me are more inclined to show me what my limits are or, or my lim- where my limits should be than I am able to see in myself right now. And, uh, I need to be able to, to say, I, I don't know more than you, you know, uh, my ego is gigantic and I had no idea that I had this ego until I started working in my sobriety program. I, I heard them talk about ego And I always was, you know, when I first got into the sobriety program, I'm like, I am such a nice person. (laughs) I am so friendly to everyone. I care about everyone and I want to help everyone. Well, that's bullshit. I have a, I have an ego that gets completely out of control. I do care about people and I am nice, but I have some character defects that, like to creep out when I'm not paying attention. And that's why I can walk around saying I'm so nice to people because I'm not paying attention to those character defects. I'm not getting honest with myself. It makes me laugh. Uh, But thankfully, uh, also at the same time that I was being introduced to uh, this ego of mine or being able to start looking at it, I had a boss that was willing to guide me 
and hold a mirror up for me and ask me what I see. And it didn't feel good most of the time. Uh, But it opened my mind. I remember sitting in my boss's office and he would get this like tone. We'd shut the door and he'd say, can I be candid with you? And I'm like, oh, geez, here we go. Because usually what that meant is that we were going to butt heads. But the butting heads was my problem. He was going to try to guide me and I was going to resist until he broke me down. It happened every single time. Um, and it it makes me laugh today because uh, at the end of the conversation, you know, sometimes we'd be in there for a half hour and he's quote unquote guiding me and I'm slowly getting broken down. And finally, I'm like, oh, oh my gosh. There was one time that uh, he was trying to point out how I did not communicate well to this other uh, individual at at one of, well, I'm not going to get specific, to another individual. And, uh, And I just was so resistant. I was like, I did not do anything wrong. And I kept telling him, he put up with a lot of shit from me. But, and I kept telling him, I did not do anything wrong. And this took several meetings with me that he kept telling me, Rachel, and he's being all like, nice, Rachel, can't you see that maybe when you said this and I'm like, no, no, I didn't do anything wrong. Anyway, it always ended with um, me, you know, I don't know, being wrong. I don't know. It he would listen. It's not like he was like breaking me down (laughs) and stomping on me. But uh, I, I ended up being willing and open minded. But sometimes he had to really work at this ego of mine. So okay, so willingness um, led to open mindedness, but honesty came first. And this honesty is the whole idea of the first step in my program of recovery, admitting that my life was unmanageable, is is simply getting honest with myself. Stop ignoring the thing that everyone else can see but me. This is what I do. This is that I'm a glutton for punishment. That's it. Uh I get to this point where I I just uh you know I I just stop looking at myself. You know, honesty as it applies to self-care is like being in a relationship with someone that someone is myself and I have an argument with him and the next day he acts like nothing happened and everything's okay. And I know you know what I'm talking about. So one time I had a woman tell me, a grown-ass woman, tell me to go to hell. And her whole family heard it. Her whole family heard her tell me to go to hell. And you know, the next day, everyone acted like it didn't happen. Everyone. Everyone went about their business 
and acted like it never happened. And this is the challenge I have with being honest with myself, um, admitting that I'm in pain and I need to look at the pain and I need to do something about it. You know, I need to look at, look at the things that other people can see and, and I just, I can't see it. it it's, yeah, it's, these words really overlap, you know, uh, honesty leads to, willingness leads to open-mindedness, you know, or it could be another way around, not sure. Not not sure it's worth our time here to figure that out. But uh, moving over to open-mindedness, not having open-mindedness, open-mindedness is when I'm locked in to what I've learned from my experiences and I'm untrusting of the experiences of others. Being closed-minded is a fear-based mindset. It's like when my boyfriend tells me when I'm making caramel on the stove, this happened the other day, <laughs> I'm making caramel on the stove. I was making cup, my gourmet cupcakes and there was caramel drizzle on the top. So I'm making caramel and I'm using a thermometer, one of those like heat gun thermometers instead of the one where you stick it, stick the thermometer in. And so he suggests to me in a very loving way, he's always very loving that I might get a more accurate read. I don't know how he puts up with me. (laughs) Rachel, you might get a more accurate reading if you use this one. Well, you know, my response is, this, I really like this one. This one's working fine. I'm going it's, and it's easier. Like I just shut him down. I was not open-minded at all. And guess what? My caramel tastes like it's overcooked. It's not burnt, but there's something that's not right with it. It tastes like it's overcooked. So open-mindedness is a challenge for me. Trusting in those that came before me and those that have that are experts or even just have more experience than me in a field like my boyfriend knows the kitchen better than I do and I for years we've been together for gosh I don't know I think we're at let's let's actually calculate we got time let's see so I think we got together I think think in 2005, 2006, somewhere around there. I think my daughter was five. So that's 2006. Um, whenever my, when the same year that, no, the year, I don't know. Anyway, so where are we at then? 2006, cognitive testing going on. In progress, 2006, 23, so 23 minus 6 is 17 years. Nailed it. 
I think. <laughs> so we've been together for that long. That's how long he's been dealing with me being resistant and closed minded. Denial is a form of being closed minded. And I wear a fancy set of blinders that I put on every day where I'm only going to look at what Rachel knows and what Rachel experiences, these fancy blinders, you know, and I need to recognize that I have those blinders on and I'm working on it. You know, how much fun is that? That's what life is about. It's about finding um, things that we can work on learning about ourselves. Uh, that's what life is about. So I try to look at it as a positive thing. Now, I, you know, that doesn't mean it feels good when he tells me to use a different thermometer. And I'm like, No, I like this one. I'm not gonna listen to you. <laughs> uh, then I'm sure he gets kind of aggravated. I don't even know. I need to ask him if he gets aggravated with me or not. He, uh, we have started to like talk about it out loud a little more. So it's becoming a, a topic of discussion, which is positive. Uh, okay. So the last thing we've got is willingness and willingness is showing up without my ego every day to practice these principles in all my affairs. So that's what I have today. And it feels good. It feels good to talk about my character defects, like openly, oh, look, openly and honestly, and being willing to look at them and do something about it. So there you go. Baracha. Way to close it up, Rach. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you tomorrow.